This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Wednesday, August 17, 2016. I'm Amy Brown. Grab a cold drink and a comfortable seat because we've got another hour of great local storytelling for you this week. First, you're going to hear two stories that were told at our Maine Summertime Stories event at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport last month by local storytellers Naomi Graychase and Amy Rader. And in the second half of the show today, Roger Sprague, a Belfast resident who was born in that town in 1929, will share some memories and reflect on the changes he's seen over the years. We start at the Alamo Theater. I want to get on to our next storyteller, who is Amy Rader. Uh, she is a, another storyteller that we first heard at Queen City Cellar Tellers in Bangor. And her story about a little dog named Belle had the audience laughing and crying, especially me. I hope she's not going to make me cry again this time. Uh, very poignant story. Uh, Amy's the director of education at the Penobscot Theater in Bangor and is currently in the middle of a summer drama program. So she says to tell you if she seems flustered, that's why. And she also performs with Improv Acadia and Bar Harbor. And would like to say thanks to WERU for this opportunity to which we say no. Thank you, Amy Rader, and welcome. <laughs> So welcome, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Maine is wonderful in the summer. I love the sunshine and the beaches and the cookouts and the fun, or so I'm told. I run a youth theater program, which means I voluntarily sit in the dark with other people's children for upwards of eight hours of day. Instead of beaches, I get scripts. Instead of cookouts, I get tech rehearsals. Instead of sunshine, I get sits probes, which sounds sexy and fun, but trust me, it's not. All that being said, I love my job. Ask me again later, though, when I've been exposed to three weeks of cleaning up spilled lunches and peeling used Band-Aids off the floor. I cursed the day Lunchables came up with the Nacho Lunchable. If you step just right on the corner of that tray, it sends an impressive arc of salsa and nacho cheese flying into the air, a double rainbow of snacktastrophe. And speaking of stories, currently we are working on a project called Transformer Tales, and it's a bunch of stories from the Penobscot Nation that we've dramatized. And in doing research for this project, a Penobscot elder told me, you're not allowed to tell stories in the summertime because a snake will bite you. So please, let's check for snakes before we go on with anything more. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm from away. Oh, I'm sorry. That was like, oh, well, you liked her, and then she said that. I've spent portions of 10 years in Maine and have been a full-time resident for two years, but I'm from away. And this is something I've had to say often in my adult life. Once on a trip from Georgia to Maine during one of those first 10 years, my husband and I stopped in Fredericksburg, Virginia to tour a Civil War battlefield. While we were there, we went into an antique store where the wary clerk said, where y'all from? I replied, Georgia. And the clerk said, thank God because all I had in here today are Yankees. My husband, a delightful and oftentimes clueless person, answered, but I'm originally from Wisconsin. My eyes jumped from the Confederate flag's Nazi memorabilia and sharp, sharp knives to the clerk's angry face, and I blurted, but we got to Georgia just as soon as we could. Before I was a resident, a permanent resident in Maine, I was summer people. You know, some are people, some are not. 
one of these summers, in the middle of an existential crisis of epic proportions, I solo hiked the west face of Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park. Dumbest idea ever. First of all, I was emotionally fragile. Don't hike alone when you'd rather be writing Tori Amos lyrics in your journal and artfully weeping. You will be sorry. Second of all, it was raining. Very few hikes are good in the rain, as most mountains tend to get slippery and hateful when wet. Third of all, I told people I was hiking a different mountain. If you solo hike, you must tell someone where the hell you'll be, if only so they can identify your broken, moose-gnawed body ten years on when a park ranger accidentally trips over your bones. Fourth of all, I thought I was a better hiker than I actually am. Suffice it to say, in 09, I found myself crawling up the side of the tallest mountain in Acadia National Park, weeping. At the top of the mountain, I noticed my hands were bleeding. I couldn't stop shaking. I have nightmares about that trail to this day. My wedding ring still has scratches from the granite face of the mountain. A normal person would have stopped hiking, or at least have stopped solo hiking, but I am not normal. For the past few years, I've been stepping out in the early hours of summer days to drive into the park and hike something on any day that I have free. I hiked Penobscot and Sargent, lovely. I hiked Pematic, majestic. I hiked the north face of Cadillac and Door Mountain, gorgeous. I hiked the south bubble, the north bubble, and Connor's Nubble. They were ubbly. In short, I was determined that my initial mistake was not the measure of me. Then one day, I set out on another solo hike. I went up Huguenot Head to Champlain Mountain via the Beechcroft Trail and down via the Bear Brook Trail, and it was fucking terrible. I am so used to hiking paths that are lined with trees, so you're not actually aware of your altitude until you reach the summit. Huguenot Head was a series of staircases without a railing where you could plummet to your death at any moment. I told myself, you can just turn back if you want to. Don't be proud. I answered myself back, no way in hell. It's just going to be scarier going back down. And then I faced my worst fear ever, what the guidebook listed as a very steep climb over smooth rock. What that means is that you're like a quintillion feet in the air, walking on a surface as smooth as glass, and that surface is at a 65-degree angle. And there's nothing but smooth rock around you. No trees, no jutting out rocks. If you slip, you will plummet that quintillion feet to your death. As I do in these situations, these tense situations, in all tense situations, I started to sing. Specifically, I started to sing my brave song. It's a simple song with a rudimentary melody whose lyrics vary depending on what's scaring me at that time. This time, most of it was, Oh God, please keep... Me from dying of hubris. I sang and I sang as I crouch ran across smooth rock from cairn to cairn. Finally, the ground evened out, and I saw that signpost that marked the summit. I threw my arms in the air in victory. I was safe. Nothing would be scary from here on out. Yes! I took a picture of that signpost at the summit, smug in the notion that I had conquered my fears. I was happy. I was validated. I was wrong. As soon as I turned away from the sign marking the summit, I noticed that all around me, the land sank away at alarming angles toward the ocean. 
I looked at my guidebook and headed toward the path for my descent, only to see a rock cairn poised on the edge of a horrific ledge that seemed to drop off into nothingness. And that marked the trail that I was supposed to take. The wind blew hard. I staggered. I almost fell. I inched toward the cairn to see if I could make it past and advance down. The drop behind the cairn was precipitous, so I did the only thing I could think of to do on that bald face of rock a thousand feet in the air. I sat down and I scooted along the rock on my butt. I scooted along for maybe three-tenths of a mile. Might not sound like much, but you try it. It's an eternity. I spent the better part of my time on Champlain Mountain looking like a poodle with parasites. I kept singing my idiot song as I scooted and crawled and slumped down the mountain. Verses included lyrics such as, When I have children, I hope they have better impulse control than I do. Or, Don't let me die here, God, because I'm pretty sure that my husband would screw up my funeral. I was singing full voice when a couple of hikers came out of the trees in front of me to head up the trail that I had been scooting down. If I were a more modest person, I suppose I would say that I was embarrassed by the fact that strangers caught me in the middle of me singing my brave song while sliding on my butt. Since I was 100% focused on survival, though, I'm pretty sure those nice folks think they ran into a mentally disturbed person. Well, I made it back in one piece. I hated almost every middle of that minute of that hike, though. And I hate that I hated it. By that point, eight years into exploring Acadia National Park, I should know what I love and what I hate. I should know to avoid steep climbs over sheer stone. I should know that I fucking hate anything with a dramatic view because that usually means you're hanging on by your fingernails off the side of a cliff to enjoy that view. I should know that my time is valuable and is not to be spent on something that is destructive, terrifying, and horrible. Ultimately, that's the lesson I should have learned in 2009 before I let myself be emotionally beaten down enough to think I deserved to hike the west face of Cadillac in the rain. Don't hike what you think you deserve. Hike what you love. Thank you. And thanks for not making me cry again with sad dog stories. <laughs> Although that thing about the poodle was pretty sad. Last but not least, we have Naomi Graychase. She's kind of a storytelling legend around here. Some of you have heard her before. Uh, she's a local writer, a firefighter, and a yoga teacher who grew up in Orland and Bucksport. Uh, she says she's nostalgic for her childhood summers when sunshine and swimming were plentiful. She's been a regular at storytelling events in the area, and some of you uh, may have heard her story that she told here about a year or so ago that has become fondly known as the poop and bubbles story. <laughs> and uh, we recorded it, played it on WERU. Someone from Down East Magazine heard it, and she was published in Down East Magazine shortly thereafter. Uh, she told another, and I told the people at Down East Magazine, her, the next story that she told was equally as good, involving, a, a, believe it or not, a car accident and a, and a cute little goat that wouldn't get out of her car. So I can't wait to hear what she has to say tonight. Welcome, Naomi Graychase.
Thank you so much. That was a really beautiful introduction. It's a lot to live up to. Thanks, Amy. Don't you love Amy's voice? Yeah. Oh, ah, they really like it. So um, I'm Naomi Gray Chase. Um, I think I'm our last storyteller tonight. So I just want to really thank all of the storytellers who came. Amy made me laugh so hard I almost peed my pants. Uh, I did have tears coming out of my eyes. Uh, and it's just such a pleasure to be among storytellers and the people who love to listen to them. So thank you to everyone who made tonight possible. This story is called Summertime in Maine, and everything in it is true. I am a Mainer, and also a summer girl, which means that I spend most of the months of my life in cold and in darkness, Waiting, waiting for the days when the sun warms my skin and I can swim and garden and read a novel in the shade. It means that for most of the year I feel pent up, held back, drained by the drudgery and hardship cold weather brings. I'm a yoga teacher, so I know the best way to enjoy life is to be where you are and when you are, not to get stuck in the past or focused on the future. But when there have been 87 consecutive days of freezing cold, one tends to ruminate on summer moments lost and to ache with desire for the warm, easy moments to come. One tends to look with longing at the light summer dresses hanging in one's closet as one pulls out yet another layer of lumpy clothing with which to keep oneself warm. And one's thoughts tend to perseverate on how much better things would be if only one could walk out of doors barefoot and sip lemonade in the sun. The problem with this way of life, one of the many problems, is that lately, and by lately, I mean the last 30 years or so, summer has not been wonderful as a kid, I thrived in summertime. Summertime meant ease and freedom and swimming at that place that shall not be named. It meant riding in the backs of pickup trucks and watching fireworks on a blanket. It meant daisies and sunshines and riding bike, bikes. But as an adult, I find instead that summer is painfully lonely. None of the things I dream of during the long winter months ever seem to come true. There is very little playtime, very little swimming and picnicking or companionship. All of the pent-up fantasies of summer seem to wither in the heat, dropping off their vines, all shriveled and fermenting on the ground. I never do make lemonade and sip it in the sun. I wear my summer dresses, but I can almost never seem to find anyone who wants to go anywhere or do anything with me when I'm in them. And I realized then that it's not so much the sun or the dresses or the daisies that I miss so much as the companionship I imagine all winter will go with them. The problem, perhaps, is this expectation that summer will be great. This expectation is so profound that when summer comes, I'm practically in a panic to make it come true. Summer is so fleeting here, and I want it so badly that from the moment the daffodils first start to bloom, I am aware that summer is almost over. 
and it hasn't even begun. From that frantic place, my desperate dream of sultry summer days with friends or lovers only ever seems to slip away, like so much salty sand through my fingers. The very best summer of my life was the summer of 1987. And without even consciously realizing it, I think that for the last three decades, I have been wishing it would be 1987 again. Every winter breeds the hope that summer will come and I will once more have all of the things that I had then. I turned 15 that summer and I had a boyfriend I loved. We spent all our time together, alone or with our friends. We picked strawberries on a farm in the morning, watched movies and took naps and swam in his family's pool in the afternoon. I was wrapped into his family's life. And for the first time ever, I had regular meal times and comfort and a sensation of home. We played badminton and volleyball and video games. We wrestled and did cannonballs and tried to swing the whole length of the pool and back in one breath. We were tan and joyful and happy in every moment of every day. That summer stretched out forever, taking its time, dishing out every sort of pleasure, like homemade ice cream from a bottomless container. No summer before or since has ever been the same. And my longing for that companionship, that playfulness, that love, and that outdoor fun has only intensified with each and every passing season. My longing for summer love, summer fun, summer togetherness, it deepens down into me in the winter Roots growing hardier as the ground freezes around me and then rising up in springtime like the most rapidly expanding weed exploding into life and taking over the very second the ground begins to thaw, hungry, determined, unruly. But for one reason and another, there have been very few summer moments to treasure since that glorious summer when I turned 15. I moved back to Maine in 2009, having every expectation that summer would become grand again. But I was ill for many years, and my body had limits that made moving around outside too hard for me. And I had chosen a life partner who preferred to stay inside all the time. And the few friends I knew were all busy with children, or work, or one another, I was left all alone, wishing and hoping, pacing back and forth, both literally and figuratively, just dying for someone to call and say, let's go jump in a lake. But almost no one ever did. My hope for summer romance, summer fun, baked and festered in the sun. And instead of swimming the whole length of the pool and back in one breath, I suffocated on the hot, lonely breath of my longing. In the spring of 2013, as summer approached, I was so lonely, I thought I might die. So as my tulips pushed up their brightly colored heads and cued the opening of the summer season, I took a chance. I joined a nearby fire department. 
It was by turns terrifying, beautiful, tedious, and hard. But over the last three years, what I have discovered there is a sense of purpose, of joy, of structure, of friendship. The Orland Fire Department has become for me, in all seasons, a safe and special place to be. On hot summer days, when the loneliness is too much for me, sometimes I go there and I stand alone in the fire bay, breathing the warm, stuffy air and admiring the fire trucks, standing steady, standing with me, their strong, quiet shoulders gleaming in the little rays of sunshine that break in through the tiny windows and the doors, the scent of oil and engines, the smell of metal and cool concrete, the mild, musty odor of fire hoses fills me with a new summer sensation, a feeling of contentment and possibility, a feeling that maybe it will be okay. Sometimes I go swimming alone, and on the way home, I stop at the fire department. If there is work for me to busy myself with, then I do that. And if not, I run my fingers along the pump panel of engine 511, or along the ridged rolling doors of rescue 581. And then I climb up into the hose bed on the top of engine 513, and I lie there, skin still damp, and I listen to the building creak as the sun outside makes the metal in the ceiling expand. Sometimes I go out into the training room where it is always as calm and as cool as a subterranean basement, and I lie down on the dusty floor, and I wait. I wait for an idea, I wait for a tone, I wait to be ready to go home alone again. Recently, in preparation for a training burn, I was with a group of firefighters who had been tasked with tearing down the asbestos drop ceiling in a home that had been donated to help us in our training. This home, it seemed, hadn't been touched in 40 years. We had to remove the asbestos before we could burn the building. And as we thrust our pike poles into the ceiling tiles and pulled them down, we were surprised to discover that magazines were raining down on our heads. Dozens and dozens of magazines, heaps and mountains of pristine, pornographic <laughs> magazines from the 1970s fell down on our helmeted heads. Dressed in full turnout gear, we had stumbled upon a porn pinata. <laughs> Every new ceiling tile brought another stash of, I swear to you, the most extreme, triple X, international, adult-themed magazines you could ever possibly imagine. We were ankle-deep in porn. We laughed, of course, and marveled, and we carried on with our jobs, scooping up the porn and tossing it down the stairs to another crew who would shovel them into the garbage with the asbestos tiles and the furniture. But near the end of the day, 
a young firefighter discovered among the porn a manila envelope. He opened it, expecting, I think, to find something in a similar vein. But what he pulled out instead was a five by seven inch black and white photograph of a middle-aged woman, smiling and fully clothed. He was about to toss the envelope down the stairs when something made me stop him. I took the envelope without looking inside it and I stashed it inside the pocket of my bunker coat to keep it safe. Later, sitting alone at home, I opened the envelope. Its address and return address had been typed with a typewriter. The postmark was from New York, New York, and two yellowed bicentennial stamps, 26 cents of postage, were still stuck to the front. Someone had written the word personal in cursive, in blue ink, and underlined it twice. Inside, nestled behind the woman's photograph, which she had protected with two squares of thin cardboard, was a packet of letters and poems, both typed and handwritten. The woman in the black and white photograph had fallen in love during a summer in Maine. In the fall of 1976, she sat down on the M train at 5.45 p.m., and on her way home from work, she got out a steno pad and a blue ballpoint pen, and she wrote a long love letter to the man she had met in Maine. My darling Joseph, she began, while I may not be as prolific with words as you, I shall attempt to respond first. I, too, am astonished at the miraculous discovery of you and that I can actually hope to love without fear. I would like to picnic and go slow and lie in meadows and watch clouds and suns. I've never been seduced in a letter before, but reading those passages of your fantasy in bed made me wonder anew about your poetic powers. While I'm not sure I could remain tangled or so close for so long, I know I'll devour your kisses, however moist, the lovemakings, because it will be so new and beautiful again, again, again. I am so lonely, she wrote. Despite children, friends, your attention, I had and still must create my own pleasures. And as you know, the loneliness of having no one to share those moments with really is pain. I want to lie down in green pastures on a hard floor anywhere next to you. My soul aches, and I long for an end to this lonely existence. Somewhere, in a home in Maine, those love letters were stashed away. For this woman, whose name was not signed, I suspect that the summer of 1976 was very much like my summer of 1987. She wasn't a Mainer, but she was, I think, a summer girl. 
Her letters describe fantasies of picnics, of long, languid bicycle trips, of days spent smiling into the sun and relaxing into the shade. In November of 1976, she was full of melancholy for summer's romantic days gone by and a desperate hope that she would find the fearlessness to turn her dream of warm summer romance, of togetherness, into reality so that she could put an end to the grinding loneliness that loomed like a killing frost in her future. I don't know what became of the woman in the photograph or to the man she loved. Maybe she moved to Maine and she and her lover had, lover had endless summers of joy. Maybe that's why the porn stayed up in the ceiling. Maybe one or the other of them died, and that's why the home stayed undisturbed for 40 years. Maybe she is still out there somewhere in New York, New York, remembering 1976 the way I remember 1987 trying to learn to love without fear. Maybe she has a hose bed to lie in alone while the heat outside causes the building to groan with each tiny expansion. Or maybe she's all right somehow, even though she still finds herself, sometimes, standing in her closet in, win in winter, her hands grazing the seams of light summer dresses while she dreams of summertime in Maine. Thank you. Amy Rader and Naomi Gray Chase were two of the storytellers at an event co-sponsored by WERU Wednesday on Maine and the Alamo Theater last month in Bucksport. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Up next, we hear from Roger Sprague. Many thanks to WERU volunteer Bill Solomon, who introduced us to this multi-talented man with many stories to share. Roger was born in Belfast in 1929, the seventh of 10 children born to a family that had been in Waldo County since the 1700s. He graduated from high school there in the 1940s, was drafted, returned home, and went to the University of Maine. He's worked in banking as a teacher and as a professional singer. He also did a stint in the Peace Corps. Roger gives voice lessons and is a gifted painter. And you can see a photo of him with one of his paintings on WERU's Facebook page and our website, WERU.org. Over the years, Roger Sprague has seen a lot of changes in this area. Well, of course, Bayview Street, Union Street, was one of the poorer sections of Belfast. Not, not like the Puddle Dog, but uh, the houses were pretty good-sized good houses and everything, and a lot of them had two families to a house, and they weren't very well kept up and that kind of thing. Most of the people at that time, were, that like in that neighborhood, worked in the shoe factories. The Daly Brothers Shoe Factory, Lower Main Street, was going strong, as up through my elementary school, I think up to about high school. 
and uh, until World War II came. Now, well, it was going strong through World War II, and then they built the new shoe factory. I guess it's the one that's the Belfast Center today. They built that. Or it was either that or the one that's where Matthew Brothers Mill is today, down on Perkins Road. So there were two shoe foot factories in Belfast when I was growing up, plus Matthew Brothers Mill that was down on Cross Street, down lower part of town. Well, as a kid, the lower part of the waterfront was the place to stay away from. First of all, it was really some uh, really poor, poor section from the railroad station over at the bridge. A lot of little houses that during that was during the Depression years. Well, with boys, if we got down that part of town, some of the boys that lived down there would beat us up or something. So we didn't we didn't take it down there. <laughs> that, uh, it's hard to imagine that today, and also, it's hard to imagine that up up on the corner by the red light, there'd be three or four kind of men hanging around there all the time that didn't have jobs and but. I don't know. It was generally safe, I guess. And as kids, we used to go to the boat wharf, which is where the boathouse is today, was the big wharf that was there. To go down there go to go fishing, and we used to swim down and dive off the wharf in the water there at high tide, not at low tide. And that was a great place to go. That later on, during the war, I think, uh, right after it, they had the roller skating rink and the dance hall uh, there. Somewhere uh, in the late 40s, Harry James and his orchestra came there and played. There were people in cars parked all over the place. In fact, the dance hall itself was so crowded you could hardly dance. Uh, and so that the day, well, I was still, I still had my paper route that went up up High Street, I think, when that happened. And two things happened in that big storm. The upper bridge washed out, and it's never been rebuilt. That continued High Street right across the river to what they called the Upper Bridge. And there was a store in a little town like like uh, City Point and had the tide, and the Upper Bridge was another little section of Belfast. It was a continuation of High Street, really. That was supposed to have been rebuilt, but they never built it, never did it. Uh, and that same storm the, the boat wharf washed out to sea. We went down there the next day. There was nothing left but a few pilings there. I think that must have been, I'm going to say, 1945 or six in there. I think that's when it was.
as a kid, I learned to swim down the city park. And all the kids in my neighborhood up around Conger Street that way used to walk to the city park every day to swim in the saltwater pool that was down there right near the water. And it, it uh, had to be filled up and emptied once a week. It was the way that worked. And the, all the kids from Belfast were down there. They usually, the Maybe the phys ed teacher from high school was the lifeguard down there and taught swimming. And that was back in the 30s and 40s. Uh, I think Darby's Restaurant may have a big old painting of that swimming pool on the wall today. And the city park, too, in the 1930s, had camping there. People on their summer vacations around Boston or whatever would uh, tent out up there and camp at the city park because there was a public toilet there and things. That's changed a lot, of course. Northport Avenue, all the way down it, of course, Route 1, went Northport Avenue right down to the old bridge, and down Bridge Street and across, right in the middle of town. Uh, there were lots of houses that had uh, overnight gas, $2 each or whatever, $2 a room, I suppose it was, and uh, houses that were along Northport Avenue and High Street, and, and there was uh, the Colonial Inn and the old, uh, big old Windsor Hotel with their porches, that uh, faced High Street, they were where where the co-op is today. And they always had some of people who stayed there. And uh, on, on the east side, they were, to what today were there, these nice motels, they used to have cabins. There were three or four places along there that had overnight cabins to stay in. So we all, Belfast always had some tours, but nothing like today. Probably 1944 or 5, during the war, I think, Mendelssohn family and the Shane family started the chicken business on a small scale. It was just a few farmers around there at first that raised chickens. I can remember I, I, my brother Doug was older. He said, uh, and, uh, well, I'm going to say this was after World War II, about 1946 or seven. He said, we got to go out to Irish today and help them pick up chickens to take down to the the Mendelssohn's place, plant there, which was later the Maplewood. And so we did. We put them in the wooden crates and took them down there. But that was just, it was a pretty small deal at that time. And uh, then during the years that I worked in the bank, that was 47 to 51, it, it had grown a great deal. 
And those of us who worked in the bank, the men, used to go down during the summer, the poultry uh, festival, and sell tickets on on the on the Saturday, and they they served all those uh, barbecued chickens. That they they had people oh, uh, they figured about ten thousand people came there to the that was in the hall at the city park also in those days. And they crowned the queen and that kind of thing. So that was all kind of fun and nice, that part of it all. And it also, as it grew, it gave a great many people in Belfast jobs. Not only in the plant itself, but to the farmers all around Waldo County. And the the farmers who raised, I don't, I forget, it was so much money per bird or whatever they raised, but compared to other salaries, like my salary at the bank was $50 a week, they made free and clear, clear at least $100 a week. All these farmers did. So, uh, even though there was a certain amount of pollution went into the water, uh, it was mostly just the blood. It wasn't much, and some feathers got in there. But if you walked across the bridge and looked down by Maplewood's plant, the bay would be all red. And and some and around that time, they they closed down after World War Two. They closed down the swimming pool, the salt water one, and built the new one that was up quite a ways from the water that's there today. We stopped swimming in the bay during those years uh, because of the feathers mainly that would get in washed up along the high tides with the high tide. Well, I think this is what happened, a couple of things. The owners, the families, uh, all their sons-in-law and things like that, they gave good jobs and made jobs for, for them and were paying them pretty good salaries. Probably that was wasting money. Also, they had used the old Waldo County General Hospital on Upper High Street, the old uh, that had been the Purse Estate, uh, for a laboratory, and they studied chicken diseases there, and they cured a lot of the diseases, found a way to cure that chickens had. All of a sudden, they could raise all these chickens throughout the South uh, on the open range, which we never did here, and they had the means to keep the disease down. And of course, we but with the cold winters here, the chickens were all raised in those barns that had to be heated. In the meantime, too, the price of oil was going up. And that was a huge amount of oil.
had had every other farm in Waldo County had raised chickens. And uh, the farmers were all out of jobs. Waldo County was the poorest county in the state of Maine. Poverty everywhere here. And it greatly affected them. Uh, some of them found other things to raise, raise for products or something. Uh, and all the people that worked in the factories were some of the ones that came here from all over the state that couldn't get very good jobs anywhere else, could get a job working in the plant. And then they were left living here with no money, no job. And what saved Belfast was when MBNA built new, the new place in Camden, bought the woolen mill down there, and started building that up and putting offices and everything there. Then the town of Camden said, we don't want you to buy any more property. See, they were buying prop houses and things, tearing them down to expand. They wouldn't let them expand anymore. So they looked to Belfast, and there was plenty of labor around here, people that needed jobs. Uh, so they came here. The manager of MBNA, I think he came from Belfast, Ireland, or was born in Belfast, Ireland. And so he took a great liking to Belfast and did a lot. And now where the uh, plant, especially the Penobscot uh, chicken plant was, it had kind of blighted that whole neighborhood. Union Street, the end of Union Street, and Cross Street, and that whole area uh, over to Commercial Street. And it was the city decided they were going to tear down some of those old buildings and maybe make a park there or something. And the city, the city of Belfast had started on the work. But MBNA stepped in and paid for it all. And it greatly, greatly improved that neighborhood down there. In fact, the people that were in a, on the blighted end of Union Street ended up with the best view in town looking right down the whole bay. You're listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture here on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. We return now to Roger Sprague with more of his memories of Belfast and the surrounding areas over the years. There weren't all the gift shops and everything in Belfast in those days. All the grocery stores and everything were right downtown on Main Street. In fact, when I was a junior in high school, I worked at Dutch Brothers, store on Lower Main Street, and that was burned down in the big fire there sometime in the 50s, I guess. They took out 
McClellan's store and uh, home furnishing and uh, Dutch Brothers Market and a couple of more. Where Tracy's Restaurant is on Lower Main Street, from there down to Rowley's were two or three quite big buildings there, but they were all wooden buildings. Some of them had, well, I don't know if McClellan's store down there was brick or not. It burned anyway. It was was red in color, I remember that. And of course I worked in this there my junior year in high school. That was during the war. And Belf and right across the road was one first national store. My uncle Esther Braley was the manager there. And just the next place up above Tracy's restaurant was the T T and K market. Uh, and then there was another grocery store right on the corner where uh, Dufour, I think it is, has their business. That was a grocery store. And the store right below the bank was Feeney's Market. They were all general stores. Oh, oh and they had the bigger First National store right where Chase's Restaurant is today. Uh, or, or the next one to it, I can't, I can't quite remember exactly. No, yes, uh, in the days when I worked in the grocery store, people came in the store, handed you their list or had their list of what they wanted to buy, and they say, well, I want a can of beans and a can of corn, and so they give you four or five things they want, and I'd run around the store and get them and bring them back and put them on the counter. And uh, the meat market was on the lower end of the store. Well, the whole store was about half the size of probably the co-op store. Wasn't even that, about a quarter of the size. You cut the co-op in four parts. All these little stores were, weren't any bigger than And the clerks got everything. You had counters go by behind you. You had high shelves in, in the big First National store. They had had to go up a ladder to get stuff behind the counter for people. And they closed at six o'clock at night. And it, oh, I didn't say during the war, the school schedules changed from eight to one. So. The boys, mainly the boys and some girls, could do the jobs in the stores. Now, I worked with Earl in the bank, who was drafted when he was 30-something. Earl and his wife never had any children. So he was drafted, went through the Battle of the Balls, which always affected him a little bit, but surprisingly he did well for what he went through came home went back to work in the bank he was working in the bank before he went and got his job back there when he 
the end of the wall. So there weren't many men around. Uh, in high school, they had to do away with sports uh, because the coaches were younger men and all been drafted. Of course, then Sears Porter had a high school, Belfast did, Liberty had one, Brooks had one, Monroe had one, Unity had a high school. But the, uh, sports was just discontinued in all those schools. Uh, Belfast had a, had a boy who was in the army stationed at Searsport, used to volunteer to coach basketball. See, Belfast had a, uh, the armory, they, they had a Coast Guard base there, and Searsport had an army base uh, because Searsport had a big uh, ammunition dump that shipped from there to Europe. Well, we call it an ammunition dump. There was all kinds of uh, ammunition of all kinds, bombs and every. I don't know, we didn't know that place was off limits to everybody, the whole port of Searsport during the war. And that's why there were always German submarines around Penobscot Bay in this area, Bar Harbor area, during the war. Down on Lincolnville Beach, lady was having a breakfast on a porch. She had a glassed-in porch, looked at the water, saw a conning tower going up. Well, she, at first she thought that was maybe um, an American sub might be there guarding Sisport. See, there was so much ammunition. And if the Germans had bombed that place, Belfast wouldn't be here today, neither would Searsport. That's how much was there. That's why they had these two bases guarding. And she called civilian defense. And that was, uh, uh, and then 10 or 15 minutes later, planes came from Dalfield and dropped death charges there. Some people say that wasn't didn't happen, but the people that lived around there all said it did. And if so, that submarine's still on the bottom out there. People that lived along the water, my friend Evelyn Vaughn out here grew up on Eagle Island, and she said they at night they saw German subs out there. And well, here's a, here, this I know this is a true story. These two men one morning over in Sullivan, which is on Route 1, they were at the country store, stopped at the country store and wanted to know the way to, to Boston, which way to go. And five or six country men were in there, and it was in the wintertime. But they were dressed in... Uh, well, overcoats or raincoats like uh, what people, the, the educated men that worked in banks and things in Boston would wear for clothing, see, with their, their dark fedora hat and the, this tan 
a raincoat that was lined also to be warm. They were all dressed up, see. So they told them the way, and uh, after they went, they hadn't gone very far. Somebody picked them up and gave them a ride, because during the war, gasoline was rationed, and the only cars that were on the road were those that had to use them for their job or something. And so people would stop and give people rides that were walking, you see, trying to get somewhere from one town to another or something. They didn't question it too much. So the men, after they went, said, who do you suppose those were, those two men were? They talked with a pretty good American accent, uh, and they talked it over a little bit. Well, maybe we better call civilian defense. Maybe they were German spies or something. And uh, so they did, and they were German spies. They picked them up this side of Portland somewhere where somebody left them off and they were hitchhiking again. But they go way down there before they caught up with them. But at another time, over around Blue Hill somewhere, in one of those estates, uh, there had been a little spy ring of Germans living right there all winter. And they, FBI or somebody found them eventually. So, and they were in one of those, well, some of these states have a lot of land around them. And they came in, they dropped them off in submarines and and rubber bolts, I suppose, that got them to shore there. That was Roger Sprague, a Belfast resident who was born in that town in 1929. Our thanks to him for sharing his memories with us and to WERU volunteer Bill Solomon for introducing us. We'd also like to thank Wednesday on Maine and the Alamo Theater for partnering with us last month on the Maine Summertime Stories event. You heard two of the stories from that event in the first half of today's program. If you or someone you know has stories or memories you'd like to share, please contact me, Amy Brown, at news at weru.org. You can see a photo of Bill and Roger and one of Roger's paintings on WERU's Facebook page and website, weru.org. And if you'd like to hear more great local storytelling while you're there on the website, click on the Public Affairs Archive tab and you'll find a category labeled Main Stories that features stories we've recorded at storytelling events around the area for the last few years. And be sure to join us here every Wednesday at 4 for Main Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. Next week, our multi-partisan panel will once again be joining us to talk about the upcoming elections, and we'll be taking your phone calls as well. So keep it tuned here to Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org, made possible with your support. So thank you for your generous support last week during our pledge drive. This is Amy Brown. Join me again next week.